I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we sit down with Brandless co-founder and CEO Tina Sharkey for the inside track on how Brandless builds direct relationships with suppliers of everyday household items so that customers don't have to end up paying hidden costs and unnecessary markups. Brandless officially came onto the scene in 2017, but Tina's been in this entrepreneurial game long enough to know more than a few tricks about what to do as a founder, and more importantly, what not to do. Find out how deep navigation of the business world gave Tina her priceless wisdom well before Brandless came to be, why strong communities are always the secret sauce, and how she's poised to shake up the entire retail industry. Unfinished Biz starts now. Wayne, we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, and it is their very first venture, and that's really not the case with Tina. Not at all. No, you take a look at what she's done in the past, that list of sort of positions that she's held, founder, board of directors, you know, it's a laundry list. Absolutely. And I remember the first time we met Tina, it was through her brandless co-founder, Ido Leffler, Mm -hmm. who we first met about a decade ago. Wow, time goes by. Uh, it was when he first started Yes to Carrots. That's right. A, a really successful personal care brand. But it's not surprising that two serial entrepreneurs got together to tackle this really complex business model. And Tina joined us in our VMG offices in San Francisco to tell us more about her journey. Both of my parents were um, in some way, shape or form entrepreneurs, um, both in the fashion um, business. And we just talked about like work and building stuff all the time around the table. So I don't know that I'm trying to think about what I did as an entrepreneur as a kid. I mean, I definitely made t-shirts and sold them um, for rock concerts. And I even did them younger where I made these really cool, like shredded beaded t-shirts and they were awesome. Nice. But yeah, they were great. I I still had one. I I definitely found one. I made a Clash t-shirt that Joe Strummer signed. Uh, Somehow I got backstage at a Clash concert in high school and I made that on the roof of my building. Um, I lived in New York City. But um, I can't find any of the beaded tie-dye shredded t-shirts. So I feel bad about that, but they definitely happened. Is there a brandless Um, version of that coming out soon? uh, I can't disclose. disclose. (laughs) Cannot Uh, confirm nor deny. deny. But um, so I'd say that, you know, making stuff and thinking about ideas of how to do things um, in interesting ways was definitely a conversation that I always had um, around the table. Like when I go to a shop, I always say to the store, uh, shopkeeper, like, what's your best selling this? Or if I go to a makeup counter, like, what's your most popular? And they're like, are you in the makeup business? <laughs> no. Um, I just am so curious. Like, mm-hmm. I want to know. Um, right. Because I think that's what my parents did. And so I was just so used to this idea of always being engaged in conversations around, like, how's it really going? And what are you really doing? And what do people like? That was always my favorite. 
um, of just trying to understand what people were liking, uh, no matter what it was, whether it was a restaurant, whether it was a shop, um, just understanding that. Just so being I'd a say sponge. Just being a sponge and a listener and an observer of consumer habits, consumer behavior, mm-hmm. um, different cultures, um, seeing how culture is connected to other cultures and how that translated to products, to services, to businesses, um, and to opportunities. So definitely uh, it started very young. Right. And then from that point, was there a, did it translate into something where that you started driving in terms of a product that, that developing, I guess, beyond the, the rock t-shirts that you had as a kid? Yeah. Um, I'd say that, you know, when I graduated university, um, because my mom was a fashion executive um, and she was my main role model, I thought that I wanted to sort of grow up and be a fashion executive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had the privilege of having some like informational interviews uh, right out of school with some really incredible people that I asked for 15 minutes, you know, just to meet them, get their perspective, et cetera. Had I known I could have been recording podcasts back then. But uh, truthfully, so I I had a meeting uh, with a guy who was a – he was the owner of a big portfolio of, like, world-class fashion brands. Uh Um, Anne Klein, Donna Karen, like, really amazing companies. And um, while I was waiting in his office, um, his name was Tomio Taki, and he was a Japanese sort of – uh, mag- uh, uh, really like larger than life businessman whose right. main business was in owning these great apparel companies. And he, I was shown to his office. And in those days, I don't even think people do this anymore, where you have a desk and then two chairs in front of it. And like people are sitting, talking to you while right. you're at your desk, mm-hmm. which just seems like such an old uh, <laughs> version of like meeting with someone. But I was sitting at the de- at the yep. chair waiting for him. And while I was waiting, behind his desk was a stack of what looked like movie scripts um, because they were written on the spine. Uh Um, But it turned out they weren't movie scripts. They were business plans. And so I was just studying the spine of all these business plans while I was waiting for him to come in. Yeah. And I was you started thinking, pick, just picking them all. No, I didn't touch any. Oh, that's, like, that's if even I better. One off, it was there. like Jenga. Like I thought <laughs> yeah. the whole thing would come down. Now you could just take a picture. Exactly. Now I would, <laughs> but no. Well, now actually, I would never do that. Yeah. But the point is that um, I noticed on one of the spines that it was a plan that I had actually written when I was at University of Pennsylvania. Um, I did. I got my degree in international relations, which allowed me to take classes at Wharton and Annenberg and the college and all across the campus. And one of my Wharton classes was entrepreneurial management. And the main project of that class was you got paired up with entrepreneurs in Philadelphia and you helped write their business plan. And so this business plan that I wrote was sitting in this guy's office hmm. on a stack of plans. But it was a it was a plan about videotape rental um, vending machines. Oh, so wow. it like was oh, wow. totally orthogonal to right. a fashion uh, business. And so I'm thinking to myself, how did, how did he get, get this plan? Yeah. So he comes into the office and very gracious, lovely man. I introduce myself. I thank him for his time. And I said, you know, I really came here to talk to you about, you know, your perspective on opportunities in the fashion um, industry and, you know, where would I start and things like that. And I, I really want to be very respectful of mm-hmm. your time. But if it's okay, I hope I'm not stepping out of line. But, you know, I've been here for a few minutes and I noticed that you have this stack of 
plans behind your desk. And one of them, um, and they appear to be business plans. And he said, yes, I have many ventures. And um, I'm also, I have at the time what he called was like a merchant bank, which if you were to look at it now, it's almost like a seed fund, right? right? But in those days, it was called a merchant bank. And he said, I have a merchant bank and with a partner, and we're evaluating all of these businesses. And I said, oh, well, you see that one in the middle? And I pointed to the one. He said, yes. I said, "Um, there's patent issues. I wouldn't invest. And he said, excuse me? (laughs) I said, yeah. He said, how do you know that? And I said, well, I wrote that business plan um, when I was at University of Pennsylvania where I just graduated and I told him about the class, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, well, would you do me a favor? I said, absolutely. Um, He said, would you meet with my partner um, and, you know, shed a light because we're actually looking at that company. Mm. I said, absolutely. So the next day I met with his partner in the merchant bank um, (laughs) and um, they ended up hiring me. And I never ended up taking a job in the fashion industry. I made like a hard right into technology. Right. Um, we evaluated the company. We um, they passed on the they passed on the plan, but they did invest because um, Tomi Otaki was very close with Akia Morito, who had found who was like head of the Sony family in Japan, and they were looking to bring high definition television into America. And Tomi Otaki was also an investor in like a video production studio in New York at the time. Um, and so we used that as an opportunity to sort of be a beachhead for bringing HDTV technology into the U.S. as a production technology. Cut a long story short, there I was. Like I was off like within 18 months I was lobbying um, Congress on the American Electronics Association <laughs> HDTV task force. I became one of like the for the leading sort of people in HDTV at the time mm-hmm. um, when it was the Japanese were trying to import the technology um, and then uh, 112560, which was the recording uh, platform uh, and standard at the time was trying to be ratified and the NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters, were deciding whether that was going to be the standard and all these things were happening and somehow I found myself in the middle of it. But, you know, it was clearly like a far cry from Kashmir. Right. Um, and um, and that was it. I never turned back. Oh, wow. And so that started my career in technology and um, and uh, innovation, doing, you know, interesting, disruptive so things. So we'd be watching analog TV with antennas if it weren't for your efforts lobbying on, uh, on the Hill? Well, no, I don't think uh, that would be true. But I would say that <laughs> I mean, um, it was it – was, those were some really interesting times. Absolutely. Um, and especially That's being really – impressive. Yeah, it was just – but it was completely yeah. one of those like – you know, lessons to entrepreneurs, which is, you know, make the advance, knock on the door, right. um, and don't be afraid um, because there you could re-roll that tape and I could still be sitting in that room. Sure. But A, the plan was there, but I didn't notice it. Or the plan was there, but I didn't have the courage to ask the question. Or um, he came on time, so I'd be staring at it, but right. not able to ask. Or the conversation went in a different direction. Um, like so many different things could have happened. But so I think part of that, what does the entrepreneur take away from that is you, there's no such thing as luck. Um, you create your own yeah, luck right. because into that room, that could have played out many different ways. Um, but it played out that way because I think my parents and my family always gave me the confidence to like join the conversation and not be afraid and take advantage as long as you're respectful. Um, there's no reason. My mom always told me, because I used to go to her showroom after high school. I would take the subway up. I went to Stuyvesant High School in New yeah. York City. 
took the subway up to her office and she'd say, look, do your homework. And when you're done, you can sit in any meeting, um, but only speak when spoken to. Mm -hmm. And the person who's leading the meeting has to be okay with you sitting there. Mm -hmm. And so what an education of just sitting there. At the time, she was the president of Ann Klein, uh, one of their blouse uh, companies. And so I just got to sit at the table. And so having a seat at the table and learning how to be respectful with that seat but also figuring out how to listen. I think that part of the entrepreneurial journey is very much about listening um, and being a good listener. Um, and sometimes entrepreneurs think it's all about talking. Um, and I clearly have that one nailed, but I'm actually, I think, a better listener than I am a talker. Um, and that's a skill that I've honed over many, many years. Well, tell us more about the, the path of entrepreneurship to, to where you are to, uh, at, at Brandless. What else, what are some other key highlights along that journey? So, well, that was my first sort of foray into technology, and, um, and I loved it. And uh, I ended up kind of taking that and the work that I did in HDTV, and really it was about thinking about how do you disrupt industry. So we went to the film industry, and we made the first short film in HDTV, and we won a gold line at Cannes. Oh, wow. We went to the commercial industry, Madison Avenue, and we made the first commercial with Jean-Paul Goud, who was this amazing uh, filmmaker out of France, and we made this award-winning commercial. Um, Then we went to the best uh, sort of avant-garde videographer when MTV was in its heyday, and we made like award-winning music videos using HDTV as a platform, as a recording platform. And so it was like, oh, okay, how do you take these industries that use recording and innovation and creativity, and how do you um, kind of introduce yourself into that? And so I'd say that those muscles started building back then um, from a almost it's either naivete or it's fearlessness, but this idea of like, well, why wouldn't I want to have that conversation? Why wouldn't I call that person and just see? Um, And so that's been like an incredible experience of just building bridges, building relationships and learning how to do that. From there, um, my next chapter, which I'd say was my grad school, was I did a tour of duty at an extraordinary boutique uh, company that was probably the world's leading identity um, and design company that did like corporate identities when Time and Warner merged or mm-hmm. annual reports, like worked with the CEOs of these major companies to help them communicate visually. And um, that discipline... And I, I led our entertainment and technology practice um, and worked with, you know, before he passed, Steve Ross, when he was the chairman of, of Time Warner and the Time Warner was merging, I got to sit at the table and help them think through what would be the visual execution of that strategy. Right. When Barry Diller bought QVC and came and took it over, helping him sort of bring that vision to life um, through all kinds of things. And that actually gave me a seat at the table with really world-class CEOs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whilst I was helping them, um, they were also, right. whether they realized it or not, they were teaching me. And so building that network with really like extraordinary people um, and learning how to use creativity, identity, design, and, um, and creative to communicate ideas that are like very complicated um, to make them simple and make them accessible and understanding that everybody, whether they are a stock analyst reading your annual report or whether they are a consumer looking at the side of a truck, they're a consumer That's at right. some level. And so how do you um, capture attention mm-hmm. and how do you do all of that? And then when uh, Diller went um, 
uh, they, he was running QVC, they wanted to start another channel. And so they recruited me to come and help launch this new channel called Q2. And I would say that Q2 was like What's taking the, the premise was at the time QVC, which now is like yeah. known as a household brand and a household platform. But the early days of QVC, it was like cubic zirconian on like black velvet <laughs> rotating. <laughs> and the perception was that people were right. buying those in the middle of the night, you right. know, yep. um, and now everything is there, but Q2 was meant to be another channel where they had distribution, but in more lifestyle. So how do you make uh, lifestyle programming that is also shopping? And so we were inventing it live, inventing right. a new shopping channel that within, I don't remember from the time I was the second hire, but from the time I got hired until the time we launched... Uh, we were quickly 18 hours live a day. Yep. And so whilst I wasn't the entrepreneur who founded that company, mm-hmm. that was like starting from nothing, right. like That's literally right. finding the office space, doing the identity platform, recruiting the entire team, building the company, going to market, learning, failing, figuring it out, readdressing it. Like, you know, and Diller's comment to me, which is my second like big wisdom um, after you create your own luck is anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And I remember him saying that to me. Um, we were going to go live with Q2. We'd been doing all the yep. development and all of that, but it was live TV, and we were going to do all it with our systems and our technology in the back end and the front end and everything. And I called him up. I'd seen some of our rehearsals where we were running yep. it all through, and I called him up and I said, Barry, like we're not ready. And he said, anything worth doing, he said this in very high decibels, um, anything <laughs> worth doing is worth doing badly. And hung up the phone. I was like, oh, shit. Like, that means, I guess I didn't get us out of going live. <laughs> like, I'm not sure what, like, did Yoda just speak? Yeah, exactly. Like, what the hell is that? that you know? so, but at least yeah. you reset the expectations where it's like, hey, even if it's bad, he said, let's do it. And so what I learned from that, because we did go live, um, was that what we learned in one hour of being live, not to mention the fact that we were 18 hours live, you know, very, you know, months thereafter, was that all of the simulations um, could not have taught us as much as being live mm-hmm. and getting the customer feedback, which is what led me to be so passionate about community. It was social. And the idea that like you could actually connect people um, who were either isolated or had a passion or had an affinity or were going through a life change right. or a life stage and that they could support each other yep. because people are good. People want to be good. And at that moment, I knew that we had, like, you know, touched on a nerve. And so that was one of the centerpieces of the iVillage experience. And we ultimately were the largest community for women online. And um, and then we took the company public. I left and went to um, a place I'd always wanted to be, what was never invited, which was Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up uh, watching Big Bird, and I... Uh, used to write the show and ask if I could yeah. be on Sesame Street. I wanted to be on Sesame Street, and they would always write back. I remember in these long postcards because Big Bird was really tall, saying thank you so much for writing, but like I never got that invitation until I had the privilege to actually be the first uh, group president to um, build and bring Sesame Street onto the open web. Really? And so uh, I got to take Elmo online, um, and I got to um, lead a great team that actually launched SesameStreet.com. 
and the total experience of what we called edutainment, which was that collaborative experience of parents and kids learning together, and uh, you know, twenty six letters in cyberspace. Um, and so that was what a great amazing. claim to fame. Uh, that was amazing. I know. Uh, so super great. And um, but let's make sure we fast forward to Brandless. I want to make sure we don't run out of time to talk about about what's uh, what, what you're up to today. How, so tell us about the genesis of of how how you came to co-founding Brandless. How'd you meet, you know? So it all starts with, uh, with people. And so I had done a tour of duty after Sesame Street. I went back to AOL as, a, as an employee, whereas at iVillage, we were like a partner and they were an investor. And um, I, was, uh, I ran a bunch of networks there and community there and went back to do community. And then I left to go uh, turn Baby Center around at J&J um, and moved out to San Francisco from New York to do that, even though J&J's headquarters were in New Jersey, Baby Center was yep. here. And um, and then I decided I wanted to cross train, and so I did a tour of duty in venture to actually give entrepreneurs you know an unfair advantage. Like I'd been doing it for a long time, I was super mm-hmm. passionate, um, and I wanted to help and look across a bunch of different businesses. And in that time, I met uh, my co-founder Ito Leffler. Um, it turned out we lived in the same town in um, Mill Valley, California, and at the time, and uh, we said, you know what? How is it that we've never done anything together? So I said, well. You're doing a million things. I'm right. doing a million things. But we live in the same town. Friends with his wife was there at the birth of his yep. third daughter. Um, families were friends. I said, like, why don't we just start? Like, just start by having a conversation. So we started with the idea of what's bothering you. And so I said, you know, what's bothering you? And he said, you know, it's funny you should ask. I woke up and Ronit, his wife, who's yep. a good friend. I woke her up in the middle of the night the other night. And I said, well, that's never a good idea. Uh, he said, yeah, tell me about it. But it was really bothering me that if people knew what things cost versus what they paid for them, they'd be riding in the streets. And really bothers me. And he says, what's bothering you? I said, what's bothering me is I'm seeing like all this rejection, rejection of government, rejection of institutions, rejection of brands. And I'm seeing a generation grow up that like doesn't want to buy the products they grew up with, Um, that they're redefining their consumption habits, their filters, their lifestyle choices, their values. So like, in my head, because I'm a very visual person, I see all these people like running away. But where are they going? Um, and who's welcoming them? Right. So if we took this idea that better doesn't need to cost more, meaning like if people knew you could actually go direct, and this idea of community where like our arms are open, come on yep. in, we're waiting for you, we see you. Um, we could reimagine what it would mean to actually build a direct relationship with a consumer, starting with the things I reach for every day. And so with that, we said, brands are trust marks, right? Like if you actually go to the definition of what's a brand, um, governments are brands, right? Countries are brands, Mm -hmm. um, products are brands, and people have lost trust in brands. So what if we were to reimagine like what it meant to be a brand, one that was built alongside like the community that we served where we asked you to like live more and brand less. Like you don't have to be defined by what somebody else tells you. We're going to do it inside out. And so Brandless was born with Edo from the idea that we could create better stuff for less dollars alongside the people that we served. And then ultimately, as soon as we got to know those people, in service of what they're asking right. for. Um, as soon as we can use the data to actually put that into the development model. Um, and so Brandless was born. And what year, what year was it born? 
So we went live to the world on July 11, 2017. Um, but Ido and I uh, started the company. I don't know when we incorporated. I should probably know that. But it was early 2015. Okay. Something like that. And what was the original perspective that folks had when you actually talked about this idea that you had, this this convergence of of people feeling disenfranchised or should be should feeling uh, disenfranchised because of what they were paying and what things were worth, as well as just this idea that people just didn't really have an affinity for the existing brands out there. Was so when you say people, do you mean like investors? Consumers? Do you mean who? Both. You know, when, and who did you go to first? Did you go to investors did, or did you share it with consumers or how did that all... Yeah, so I'd say no, we didn't share it with consumers because we were like just gestating the idea. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we definitely uh, shared it with the investor community first. Mm-hmm. And we started with the insights and the data um, that suggested that out of the top 100 CPG brands, I mean, you know this from uh, the extraordinary work you do here at this firm, that 90 out of the top 100 CPG brands last year were in decline. So that wholesale turnover, that dismantling of the CPG core, the turning over of the portfolios, the changing of habits yep. and taste palettes and lifestyle behaviors of the modern consumer. So validating that, then validating that we could actually create these products for remarkably fair prices um, and that the boutique that was being thrown at some of the health food chains and other places could actually be a festival if you were to just blow the doors yeah. off the front of the building. And so that was the early thinking um, around alongside community and all the other things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was the validation. And then we went out and we made our first hire. And our first hire was, is, and still is, uh, Rachel Vegas, who is this extraordinary world-class uh, product development person who built the non-perishable grocery business at Target and spent 15 years there. And before that, you know, sort of cut her teeth in grocery yep. and um, just really, an, and most importantly, irrespective of all of those great career highlights, just a great human being yeah. mm-hmm. who I had instant affinity with. And I said, like, I want to do this with you. Ida already knew Rachel. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, you know, what's Tina going to think? Yeah. You know, and I was like, I mean, you know, home run. So we found our people. And, did you uh, know it was going to be called Brandless from the beginning? We did, but we went to market not to consumers, but to the trade and to the um, uh, supplier community as we had a code name. And our public code name, including our LinkedIn profile, our email addresses, we even had a website that was all stealth, mm-hmm. was DOSI, D-H-O-S-I. And the reason why we were DOSI was because we didn't want to disclose and our hand. Um, that was a big risk. Yep. Um, and so we were brandless the whole time. We were building the brandless identity. We were doing all of those things in the background. But in the foreground, because we had to have contracts with our vendors and all of that, right. they were all uh, with Dosi. We had decks. We had everything. And yep. everything was under this code name. And the way we came up with Dosi is because when you do the history of uh, what was documented as one of the first brands ever in history, there was this little town in India called Dosi, and uh, they used to sell the mud from one of their hills because it was meant to have Ayurvedic um, healing properties. And so um, it was known as this Dosi mud, and so... Some research we did somewhere where people were like like doing Google searches about right. like the contest to fake name the company because yeah. we had already named it. Um, we came up with Dosi and it was available um, as a web uh, URL. And so so brand, Brandless came first. And then Brandless Dosi came, came first. Dosi was Got the uh, was the Trojan horse. Were you Got filing the, the Brandless trademarks? 
Oh, all along. Co- okay. Yes, all along. Got yes. It. And then, and then, how much did you raise in your initial seed, and how how did you get the business off the ground? So we raised, you know, less than five million dollars. Yeah. Um, and really, what we said we were going to do um, was we were going to prove a couple of key milestones in the seed raising. Number one was that we could source the products and that we had the data and architecture to create the right assortment. Um, and an assortment that we thought would be the, what we call the everyday essential, I mean, not call it to consumers, but the everyday essential store, yeah. where we would start. Mm-hmm. Number two was that we could articulate the brand, like the brandless brand, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And so I remember when we went on to that journey, um, the, the company Red Antler that we partnered with, I remember Simon and Emily and JB sitting around and saying like, this was like Zen in the art <laughs> of the unbrand, you know? Right. And so like all of the team had like gone to the mountains, you know, and come back to like, think about how might you execute. To Dosi. To, no, to brandless. No, I'm just uh, kidding. Dosi, no, I actually no, I meant uh, yes. in, in their journey. I'm just in kidding. their journey, yes. And so, um, and that we could kind of think about how that roadmap, because Brandless was never invented to be $3 everyday essentials. Brandless was invented because we believed that better didn't need to cost more mm-hmm. and that we would start with the things you reach for every day, but that we could do essentially anything because if you're reimagining a brand that's not defined by the products, we felt the products could tell their own stories. Like the false narrative right. of a faux name uh, didn't have a role in brandless. Like applesauce is applesauce. Yep. And so applesauce can do its own talking. Um, don't speak on behalf of applesauce. And who even says it wants to be a toddler snack? Did anybody ever ask applesauce? And so that whole premise that products were what they were and that the truth, trust, and transparency was about watching. We spent and still spend hundreds, thousands of hours watching the way people shop in physical stores. And as you know from the portfolio you've built, because they're switching, they go to the aisle, they pick up a product, they turn it around, they turn it over, they look inside, Mm -hmm. they look behind it, and what they're looking for are those qualities. And they're different for everyone. And Mm -hmm. by the way, it's different for every product. Some are looking for gluten-free. Some want to know if there's no sugar added. Some want to see the country of origin. Some want to see... So it goes on and on. And any attributes very clear. So we said, you know what? And that's where my digital background and my identity background from distilling these things into simplicity... And UI and UX, I said, we're going to be the first consumer company that actually has a UI and UX for every product. And so that white box and those check marks were about what does the product want you to know about itself? It's organic. There's no sugar added. It's gluten-free. It's kosher. Whatever it is that needs to be. And then the certifications will come on the packaging. But those checkmark attributes, those are the key things that you need to know and that the product wants you to know. And we even have like a white box attribute like um, team. You can't get into that white box unless you fight for that attribute because it has to be there's because there's thousands of attributes, right? It was really about like the most important ones. The other ones go on the back, and the rest goes on the uh, on the website. So, how do you scale that portfolio off the ground? I mean, the, the p- part of its product breadth. Right. So that was where in that seed fund, where under Rachel's extraordinary leadership and amazing data and analytics of like what makes an everyday assortment, what's a basket and what's a trip, and how do you build that? What we called I we dubbed CC, which was category complete. So that when you look at what are people buying every day, first we looked at household penetration rates. Then we looked at CTs, consumption turns. Then we looked at expandable consumption or fixed consumption. So we said, okay, snacks, for example. You know this, again, this is the right point. This is the right firm to be talking to um, because 98.8% of American households 
um, have snacks in their home. I think that number is underreported. Now, what are the CTs? What are the consumption turns? 52. That means that every, basically every household in America buys snacks every week. Um, now, where is that expandable? Because you could make the same argument for toothpaste. Mm-hmm. However, toothpaste um, isn't ha- doesn't normally have expandable consumption unless you add more people in your household right. and you're sharing a bathroom. Or but convincing not, them to brush their teeth more. Or convincing more. them to brush their teeth mm-hmm. more. So maybe you go from one to two or two <laughs> right. to three, but you're not going to go to 10. That's right. Brandless has right now on our website, um, when we made a toothpaste, we made one and it's fluoride free. And might we do another one? Maybe. Um, so even though it has 98.8 or whatever the number is in terms of that, and but the consumption turns are not that high because people don't turn over the toothpaste and it's not expandable. Mm-hmm. Snacks, we have probably 80 at this point because it's got expandable consumption. There's different use cases for different snacks at different times. Some are vegan, some are gluten-free, some are entertaining snacks, some are on-the-go snacks, some are protein snacks, some are health snacks. So it's like a whole thing. So then we use that architecture across the entire assortment yep. to say the household penetration. And that's how we built out the initial assortment. Today, we do all of that with the same rigor, except we added one more stack. And that stack of data, that filter, is a stack of consumers. So what are they typing into our search engines? What are they telling us yep. in social media? What are they writing us in uh, email? What are they calling us and telling us? What are the conversations that we're having? And that are the leading things that are, we're putting on our roadmap. For example, last week, we just launched our first um, Better for Pet and Better for Baby collections. Oh, nice. And so we have $9 for a week's worth of plant-based um, diapers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, again, amazing, uh, high-quality, 12 hours of dryness yeah. and protection. Um, at an incredible value. For, High frequency. Um, and we also launched a subscription program yeah. because over 40% of diapers that are bought online are bought through a subscription. But before we, um, before we wrap it up, I think one key area is as, a, as an entrepreneur and a CEO is thinking about how, how you raise capital and how much to raise. And I think one of the things that's been recently in the news is the, the large round you guys raised from SoftBank. And I think, I mean, tell us a little bit more about how you decided to go about that why 250 and how will it take brandless to the next level? Great question. Um, so, uh, what I really loved about the SoftBank and continue to love about the SoftBank Vision Fund, uh, first and foremost, is the vision. And uh, what I mean by that is that under Moss's leadership, they have really built a fund to identify what they believe is the future. The future of work, the future of travel, the future of enterprise, the future of so many, the future of communications, call it Slack, call it Uber, um, call it WeWork, all things in their portfolio, and accelerate the future or into the present by funding those companies to execute their vision for how they're going to uh, take on those major categories. Mm-hmm. And so when they learned about Brandless, and I happened to know Jeff Hausenbold, who is the partner, and Justin Wilson, on the two partners on our uh, board now. Um, Jeff and I have known each other for you know a decade plus. Yeah. Huge respect for him as an operator. Um, a total consumer um, guy who understands communities with soul. Yep. Having done illustrious career at eBay and then having been the CEO of Shutterfly, two incredible consumer product platforms Absolutely. that are tied to community yeah. and soul. Thank you. So, um, so what was great about both the vision of the Vision Fund and then the operators and board members and investors that were the advocates for Brandless was they saw our vision 
for the future of supply chain, the future of fulfillment, the future of modern consumption at the highest level, mm -hmm. and how can we collapse the efficiencies over time um, to make things that people want as opposed to the guessing game, to condense the time to market, yep. to test and learn and use community insights engines and data, and to have all of that data across everything that we do. Because what you see at Brandless is the great products that we make, Absolutely. but you don't see all the things that are happening behind the scenes. You don't see our data stack. You don't see our technology. You don't see our all the things that we do ourselves. I was say, we certainly have appreciation for the complexity of what you're trying to what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's substantial to be able to, to launch the number of items that you guys put out at the speed that you, that you have with the, the quality of products that you have and then nail it at the price points that you want to sell them to, to the communities that believe in the brandless brand. So again, I, I think it's, it's hugely impressive. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, Tina Sharkey. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can find us at unfinishedbiz.com and at our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page. Subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. If you love the show, consider leaving us an iTunes review. Five stars or bust. And now, let's get back to our episode with Brandless CEO, Tina Sharkey. So, has there been a bet the company moment for Brandless? So I think there's been, uh, well, it feels like every day is about the company <laughs> moment. So like, you know, call it any, any given Sunday. Right. Um, but, uh, I'd say that two weeks ago, uh, was a bet the company moment okay. because we never launched brandless with the intention of being the $3 store. Mm -hmm. yep. Um, what $3 communicated in our go to market was the simplicity and the curation of like, don't bother checking prices. Just learn about these great things and here's all the information and we're simplifying all of that. So it was a big message around that. But then we took the brandless philosophy and rigor and discipline around high, high quality at fair and accessible prices. And we launched our three uh, first $9 collections. Mm -hmm. One in Better for Baby, yep. one in Better for Pets, and one in Better for Bakeware. Um, and we knew we were never the $3 store. People said that about yep. us, but we never said it about mm -hmm. ourselves. How did the community react? Oh, my God. Overjoyed. Yeah. Not a, I mean, we must have launched on that week. There must have been 30 um, forward-leading you know, national uh, press uh, articles, whether they were in verticals like parenting or whether they were in nationals or whether they were in trade. I'd just been at NRF, all of that. Wow. And um, millions of impressions and not a single article, uh, not one, mentioned the fact that uh, these are the price of these things. I mean, they may have mentioned that $9 for a week's worth of yeah. plant-baked dinosaurs is amazing, yeah. but they never said, oh, why aren't they $3? $3 yeah. No, because people understood what we were comping on, mm -hmm. and they were like, wow. Because we had seated the community a few weeks before who'd been using the diapers, and so even this, I think this piece I read in Real Simple where we didn't even know they were doing it. They asked for some diapers. We gave it to them. Uh, thinking they were photographing them or whatever right. they were doing, we found out that they had given them to two of their editors who were on maternity leave, huh. who were using them, and they wrote these reviews that, I mean, you would think it was my sister Lisa, um, <laughs> who is like our number one community member, mm -hmm. except her kids are now in their 20s, so that would be really odd. Um, <laughs> but 
the response was, this stuff is amazing. Mm-hmm. And so Robin that was has definitely... A two, week, a two week old. I see oh, him ordering, ordering, ordering yeah. some brandless diapers oh, right now at, so during the podcast. I exactly. Love that. Well, well be, the organic baby food is also amazing. We'll run through that. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Oh, there's so much good yeah. stuff. Um, so anyways, so that was like a hold our breath moment because we were just waiting to see how people responded. Um, and uh, that was, yes. So related to something like that, you know, is there, is there a particular high point that really stands out in your mind during this brandless journey to date? Uh, particular high point. Um, there's so many. It's just been so. It's been such a privilege to be able to serve this community and to be. And the first community, honestly, is our team. Mm-hmm. We say at Brandless, and it's on the back of every one of our packages. You know, here at Brandless, we right. put people first, mm-hmm. which means value and value stick together. Better stuff, fewer dollars, no nonsense. And then we end with the two most important words: there are. Join us. And we're not saying shop with us. Mm-hmm. We're not saying buy from us. That's right. We're not saying try us. We're just saying join us. And so that starts with the people we hire. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we say we put people first, that starts with them. Um, And so say that the high point moments are we do these things in our company called intention ceremonies where every employee, I ask them if they wanted to set an intention personally, like what would it be and then how can we support them? And then we created these ceremonies with a few dozen people where Everybody shares that intention. They, then they tell us how we can support them, and then we all sign this special card, and we hang it on the wall. And, oh, wow. uh, and it's a ceremony that we now do with every new set of employees, and their managers come. And when we started the company, like when we launched, we had about 32 people. Yep. Uh, we're now at about 120. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're growing and scaling really fast. And it's just been extraordinary to see. How often do you do the intention ceremonies? Um, We do it probably every, you know, it depends on the schedule because I like to do them. I'll only do them live. So I get to Minneapolis. I just did one a couple of weeks ago there. We do them every probably six, eight weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, It depends, you know, how many people and what the time of year and who's in town and just planning it and wanting it to be special. Um, And so those moments when the intimacy of sitting around a table mm-hmm. with people who have decided to join our movement, uh, to join our company, and to be part of this team that's trying to, in our own humble little way, take our swipe at changing the world. Those are the moments that um, they're priceless because they're investing in us and their time, their passion, and their true desire to just make it better. That's right. And the it is for everybody to define for themselves. But I just believe there's a better way. Mm-hmm. Well, despite um, all the success of Brandless, being an entrepreneur is not easy. Oh, my gosh. Is there, is there a, a low point that stands out during this Brandless uh, journey to date? What was my answer for the high point? Every day? Every day, every day. Okay, the, the, so low the, point. The, every day, every, every day. day. Uh, all within the same hour. Um, so, look, it's not easy. It's not all, you know, what did you say? Rainbows, uh, rainbows and, and unicorns. unicorns yeah. Although I really do like rainbows. Um, <laughs> uh, and my, my, so my superhero is, uh, is Rainbow Girl. So that's a, whole, that's a podcast for another time. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's just, it's hard. It's really, really hard. And it, what's hard is that one of the reasons why there's so much cost in the system is because the inefficiencies of working sequentially 
um, and uh, having an agency do your advertising and an agency do your creative and another team, you know, creating the technology and another team in another company or another country doing. So bringing all that together in one kind of renaissance-like way where you have such multidisciplinary uh, things that you're trying to fuse together um, is what I call to the team. I said, look, when we started the company, I said, everybody, take your corner, face the wall, and go execute what you need to do because you're amazing at what you yep. do. Then I said, now that we're about to, we're six months from launch, we're three months from launch, or we just launched three months ago, now we're in what I would call the Frankenstein moment, yep. which is you built your piece. Now we have to make it all work together because each piece has to be extraordinary unto itself. But if it doesn't work as a fused, integrated system, then then the whole idea behind Brandless and the efficiencies that we can get um, and enable to speed. And so having these people who've never worked together before, yeah. and I don't mean the people, I mean the disciplines, right. the, mm-hmm. uh, the industries, mm-hmm. um, and the, the speed, the, the speed and oh, the, yeah. the, so think about how many industries are under the roof of Brandless, uh, yep. how Crazy, many people yeah. who come from those various industries mm-hmm. and are used to working in like much slower, more laborious ways, mm-hmm. but now they're working cross discipline. Now they're collaborating with people whose backgrounds and experience they've never experienced before. So I think there's a, there's a real theme of complexity, right? That you're trying to nail at Brandless that makes it part of the, the major challenge. And simplicity, it's, it's taking it and simplifying it. Exactly, and trying to simplify it. There, you know, during that journey of trying to, to navigate the complexity, is there, a, is there a single point where you're like, oh my gosh, like this is so complex and this happened and it symbolizes sort of the, the, the challenge of what you're trying to pull off? Yes, so there was an interesting moment where... Um, we were um, out of stock on some, and I, so here it was actually, um, I think it was our acacia um, silicon spoons had, believe it or not, had gone viral <laughs> in social. Mm-hmm. Somebody ordered a collection of them. Yep. They are beautiful and they are amazing. And they'd gone viral. And all of a sudden sales started to spike yep. on these spoons and we went out of stock. And there was a long lead time because we hadn't planned to have that be like a lead item. And all of a sudden we were like, oh my goodness. Well, so the inventory planning people, person at the time, with not a lot of people, said like, how do we just sell out of those things? And then the social media like advertising managers like... What do you mean I can't advertise that anymore? Like my CAC, my cost has gone so far down because yeah. this is clicking. And, and the creative people said, that is the ugliest picture I've ever seen <laughs> because somebody took a picture like, I don't know, on their floor, or on their pillow right. or whatever it was. Um, but it was working. Right. And so we were leaning into it. And so it was like all of these things, the brandless vision was alive and well that like somebody saw the product. They had this, they took this photo, they shared it with their friends. They were so excited. Their friends shared with other people. Sales of this one product were spiking. No one saw it coming because it yep. wasn't in the in newsletters. It wasn't in the email. It wasn't in the plan. We sell out of the product. Now we can't get back to the product fast enough because yep. we weren't planning that. Right. And it was sort of like, wow, like this is amazing. I mean, it was not a good thing. And we had to learn like, what does it mean to be out of yep. stock? And mm-hmm. how did that affect the 
orders? How did that affect if that was what they were coming in for? Did that mean that we lost because we lost the right. trip? Did we lose the mission? Did we mm-hmm. lose? The, we lost the mission? Did we lose the whole trip? And learning the implications of being out of How's stock. How does that affect your community? How right. does that affect the community? How does that affect like everyone? What did we learn from this opportunity? So I always say to the team, look. You know, well, now we've now we know that, you know, like so like everything is a learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so doing the what I call the retros and doing the like debriefs where there's no bus, nobody's being thrown under any bus like that's not our culture. But like we have to come back together and say, like, what did we learn from that? And then how can we avoid that in the future? Um, And so that those inflection points, those moments where we're being called upon where we're being asked to rise, mm-hmm. where we're being asked to figure out what did that teach us that can make us better? How can we think about inventory planning? How can we think about being out of stock? How can we think about Chinese New Year? Yep. How do we think about all these various factors? How do we think about social media and viral? Um, how do we use that and lean into all of that and put it back into our into the flywheel? Right. And we build a better flywheel. And every day we're trying to build a better flywheel. Mm-hmm. And so that for me is sometimes costly, but ultimately if you take those learnings and you grab them and you put them right back into the system, it accelerates our ability to get better and to make it better and to do better every day. At this point in time, what keeps you up at night? Uh, well, so my co-founder, Ido Leffler, who's, you know, like my best friend and my partner in crime, um, when we met, he lived in Mill Valley. Uh-huh. He now lives in Melbourne, Australia. So <laughs> there you go. It literally, literally keeps me up at night. Because, good answer. So uh, because the he's only time uh, you guys can talk. Yes, I always call him and I say, "So tell me what the future holds." Right. You know, because I'm, he's always in the future. Right. Um, so literally, <laughs> like uh, he's in the future. Um, he says, "Why?" Because we like to FaceTime. Yep. And he says, "You know." I think your screen is not working. It's dark. I'm like, it's dark because I'm sleeping right. and the phone is under the covers That's where right. I am. That's, right. That's why it's dark. What were you calling about? That's yeah. right. So, um, so we laugh a lot yep. um, and we never take you know ourselves too seriously. Um, but uh, having him in Melbourne, Australia, um, the best time to catch up usually is in the middle of the night. Yeah. So unfortunately, that keeps me up. Tina's bet the company moment was two weeks ago. I mean, it really goes to show that they're really in the thick of things right now. I mean, they, they're tackling something really complex, Robin. I mean, uh-huh. it's a lot of SKUs in multiple categories, trying to do it at historic low price points. And at the same time, they have to spend a lot of money to build a brand named Brandless purely uh-huh. online. That's right. But I guess there's a reason why they recently raised $250 million. Mm-hmm. It's It's going to take iteration She's proven that she believes in the test and learn model. And $250 million, it gives them time. For sure. And if there's anyone who can do it, it's Tina. I mean, she's won an award at Cannes. She's built multiple blog communities. She's worked for Sesame Street. I mean, again, everything set her up for great success on this one. And I think that she's, uh, she's, she's positioned to do well. And you might guess that Tina stays pretty busy outside of work as well. And you'd be right. When you're not building, you know, work communities, I'm, I'm sure you're building some type of community outside of work. What What do you like to do? Uh, what do I like to do? I like to run. Yeah. Um, I like to spin. I like to cook. Um, I like to spend time with my kids. Um, I like to spend time with my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to hike. I live in Mill Valley at the foothills of Mount Tamalpais. Um, I like to just 
be without my car. I like to just walk. <laughs> You're in the yeah. right place for that. Yes, totally. And so, um, an office in the park. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I just, you know, I like to shut it all down and, um, you know, I get a lot of joy out of cooking. I get a lot of joy out of entertaining uh, my friends and bringing together uh, my communities. You know, my best friends who live across the street or the last night I, you know, found myself um, free. And so my son's uh, high school team was in the basketball playoffs. And so I nice. said, where are you going? He's not even on the team. He's mm-hmm. a football player. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going because, you know, my friends are in the playoffs. Yeah. And I said, I'm coming. Don't worry, I won't sit near you. Um, and so, uh, and I loved it because I walked into that gym, and these are moms. I mean, I many of the kids Charlie went to kindergarten with, and we've known them all the way through. And he's a junior in high school now, and I just got to climb onto the bleachers and sit with these moms, and we've raised our kids together, and we got to sort of look at what they were doing and how they were accomplishing it. And it was just like. These are my people. Like, I'm a member of lots of different communities, but like going to a high school basketball game in the middle of the week and sitting with my mom friends and watching my son's friends just, you know, get to the finals of nice. the Marin County playoffs. Like, that's awesome. Charlie's a football player. They won. Uh, they went. They won their league. They're basically, they and he was the MVP of the whole league. And so, nice. you know, when I'm not doing that, I'm snack mom or that's I'm right. cheerleader mm-hmm. mom or I'm, you know, on the PA mom. And, you know, I, I walk that walk. That's what I do. So, Tani, you ready for our signature rapid-fire game? Bring it on. All right, here we go. All right, salty or sweet? Salty. Mountain or beach? Mountain. Window or aisle? It depends how long the flight is. <laughs> Newspaper or tablet? Newspaper. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Morning. Netflix or Hulu? Netflix. Phone call or text? Phone call. Music or podcasts? Podcast. iPhone or Android? iPhone. Scrambled eggs or fried? <laughs> Scrambled. Shopping online or in store? Both. Dine in or take out? Dine in. Pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Red wine or white wine? Chardonnay. <laughs> Digital or analog <laughs> clock? Uh, analog. Being too hot or too cold? Too cold. <laughs> Backstreet Boys are in sync. Neither. Salsa or guacamole? Good answer. Guac. Roller coaster or water slide? Uh, oh, neither. <laughs> well done or rare meat? Well done. Ketchup, mustard? Mustard. Comedy or thriller? Comedy. Sedan or SUV? SUV. Glasses or contacts? Glasses. American football or European football? Oh, American football. <laughs> Tupac or Biggie? <laughs> neither. That's a near record performance. It really is. It really That's is. It happens when you have a New Yorker. That's a high degree of conviction. That's too. right. I like that. So final question. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Uh, fall forward. Wow. Well, can you elaborate what you mean by that? Just in the sense of like taking risk, um, if you're going to, you know, you're going to fall, um, that's a given. Mm -hmm. So, but you might as well fall forward. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't let fear uh, stop you from pursuing your passion, um, having the courage of your conviction. Um, And if you're going to fall, like make sure that you're making progress while doing it. Um, Always um, make sure you're listening. Uh, Make sure the people that you're listening to 
um, have wisdom that is rare, unique, and additive to what you're doing. Surround yourself with people who have more experience than you have. And uh, don't hold on so much to your ideas at the expense of bringing them to life. Mm -hmm. Because where you start is not where you finish. And so if you know where you want to end up, find a way to get there. If you think it's the shortest distance between two points, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, So be prepared to find a ladder, dig a tunnel, call a helicopter, Mm -hmm. uh, climb a wall, go around the block three times, but never take your eye off of where you want to get to and make sure that the people that you've built around you, um, you're letting them help you um, and you're listening and you're iterating all the time because if you stay stuck um, and you don't fall forward, um, you're not going to go anywhere. That's great advice. Well, Tina, thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back on the next episode with Courtney and Gordon Gould, co-founders and co-CEOs of Smarty Pants Vitamins, who just so happen to be married. How do they do it? Smarty Pants Gummy Vitamins are non-GMO, allergen-free, and made with eco-friendly ingredients. But the Goulds have loftier goals than just running a successful business. Smarty Pants' nonprofit arm is bringing vitamins and minerals to at-risk populations all over the world. No biggie. Amazon has always been kind of our North Star, for sure. But the reality is people still discover brands in-store. And the volume of sales were still in-store. So we knew that it was really a way for them to meet the brand, and then eventually they might migrate to Amazon. But we were going to get more brand exposure and build brand equity in a more cost-effective way if we were sort of with those key retailers. That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com. These are the opinions of Robin and Wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of VMG partners. And now a word from our lawyers. This is not an offer to buy or sell any investments. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.